The Honorable, the Judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having any manner or form of business before the Honorable of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit are admonished to draw an eye and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. May it please the court. Maryland and the District of Columbia seek to assert an implied cause of action to enforce the emoluments clauses against the President of the United States in its official capacity. The district court committed multiple fundamental errors in refusing to dismiss this suit, and plaintiffs are fundamentally- Can I ask you to speak up just a little bit? Yes, sir. Bring the microphone a little closer, if you can. And uh, the plaintiffs are fundamentally mistaken in asserting that this court is powerless to correct any of those errors at this time. Now, we have identified two different paths through which this court can grant mandamus relief, but there's one overarching point that is of central importance, and that is this. The Supreme Court in Cheney made clear that separation of powers considerations are taken are of utmost importance when considering mandamus petitions involving the President of the United States. For example, the court quoted Chief Justice Marshall to say that in no case would a court be required to, treat, to proceed against the President as it would against a private individual. And moreover, the court said that the high respect that is due the office of the President must be considered throughout the entire proceeding. Now, what does that imply in this case? It implies the following. Their position is that even if the district court erred in refusing to dismiss the suit, indeed, even if it clearly and indisputably erred in refusing to dismiss the suit, if every judge on this court agreed it was error to refuse to dismiss the suit, their position is that this court is still powerless to do anything about it, that the president must go through district court litigation, be subjected to discovery into his personal finances, into the official acts of his administration, and only at the end of all of that can he take an appeal from a final judgment, which will then promptly be dismissed? Counsel, that can I ask you, I, I thought that it was your burden to show that you were clearly and indisputably uh, entitled to mandamus. I thought that was one of the three requirements of mandamus relief. Is that not so? That is correct, Your Honor. Okay, so it is not that they are saying that you haven't met that. It's you having to demonstrate to us that you have met that, right? You're part right and part not right, Your Honor. Uh -huh. It is true that we have the burden to show right. clear and, clear and indisputable right. Their position, however, is even if the district court was clearly and indisputably wrong, if every judge in the world would agree that he should have dismissed the suit, their position is we still can't get appellate relief. That is absolutely their position. But you're skipping a step. 
you you have to meet your burden first that Judge Motz is asking you about. That's right, and I'm so happy how? to. I'm happy to do that. I just wanted to make clear that they have two. Well, parts I to think that we have to yes. talk about your burden because okay. you would agree with me that mandamus is extraordinary relief. It is, Your Honor. Okay. All right. So I'm happy so to go show... to demonstrating that you're entitled to this extraordinary relief. Absolutely. And so what I wanted to say at the outset was we have two men means of showing mandamus. Let me focus. Well, let, me, let me interject there. Yes. Why you're doing that? Why don't you? distinguish, as you see it, this case from what the D.C. Circuit did in a similar setting where they sent it back, as I understand it. So I don't actually, I'll answer both questions at the same time, Your Honor. I don't actually think that there is a material distinction between what the D.C. Circuit did and what this court, we are asking this court to do in the following sentence. The D.C. Circuit said the district court had clearly abused its discretion and refusing to deny uh, to grant 1292B certification. Without deciding whether it could grant mandamus on that basis, it then remanded and told the district court, why don't you reconsider? And with all respect, I just don't think that that is a material distinction between just ordering the court to say, you've clearly erred, you should grant certification, and telling the, a lower court, you've clearly erred, why don't you reconsider it? Any well, the Supreme Court seems to have thought there is a big difference in granting mandamus relief yeah. and doing that. And that's, I think, the why the question is well taken. So that's why I'm, right. I'm, I'm sorry to persist in yeah. this. Maybe you can explain to us why you meet the three requirements for getting mandamus relief right. here. All right. So, again, th so at the first prong, let me say one last thing about that, and then I will finish that. Because they're related. <laughs> the reason why I don't think there's a difference is because when you tell a district court they have clearly abused their discretion and why don't you reconsider, only two things are going to happen. A reasonable district court will, of course, follow the court's instruction and basically grant the certification. A totally intransigent district court will thumb its nose at the Court of Appeals. And it's more than a clear abuse of discretion to get mandamus relief. You recognize that, don't you? That's the first prong. A clear abuse of discretion is the first prong. Right, clear and indisputable error. If you look at Cheney, clear and indisputable right, right is different than an abuse of discretion. Uh, than an abuse of discretion, but not a clear abuse of discretion. If you look at Cheney, it is expressed. I can read you the quote. But you're yeah. still it, skipping the first step. The first step is that you have to demonstrate is a clear and indisputable right. So what okay. is that? clear and indisputable right. right. So we you have must two, think you have one. Yes, we have two different theories for it. I'll quote I'd like to hear one. Okay. And one what was the, and if you could answer uh, along with that, what was the district court legally required to do that it did not do? Okay. What, would, what did it have to do that was not right. done in this case? I think our simplest explanation to all those, the three questions I've gotten, what was the clear and indisputable legal error, is we think it is clear and indisputable that you cannot sue the President of the United States in his official capacity without, at a minimum, having an express statement authorizing such a suit by Congress. We think that is clear and indisputable because the Supreme Court has thrice held exactly that. In well, I, I, I think that's your gloss on what the courts held, but we know from current litigation involving similar issues that several courts have allowed suits against the president to proceed. 
So how can it be clear and indisputable? With all due respect, Your Honor, if lower courts are flouting Supreme Court precedent, that does not change the fact that the Supreme Court precedent is clear and indisputable. Okay. What the Supreme Court said in Franklin versus Massachusetts, the question in Franklin was whether the president was subject to the Administrative Procedures Act. The Administrative Procedures Act said it covers agencies, and the defined agency is any authority of the government of the United States. And what the Supreme Court said is that that language didn't expressly include the president, but nor did it expressly exclude the president. And it therefore reasoned that in light of the separation of powers and the unique constitutional role of the president, textual silence was not enough, and you needed an explicit statement from Congress before the president could be subject to the counsel, APA. Counsel, can I go back to the standard here? You said that there was a clear legal error. And, and is it your view that mandamus should issue if a reviewing court thinks there's been a clear error? Because that's the standard we use on direct review when we're reviewing, for instance, factual findings. And I don't think anyone thinks we should grant mandamus on that Again, ground. It's, there's a three-pronged test showing clear and indisputable legal error or clear abuse of discretion, either one. Well, well, I think you're clear and indisputable take, right. <laughs> and I think right. you're taking that out of context from Cheney. I mean, I, under, I know the quote you're talking about, but it's in a paragraph that talks about how this is an incredibly drastic remedy, how it's traditionally been used only to ensure that a district court has not um, usurped sort of some gross abuse of authority, usurp the power that it doesn't have, um, been gone outside its jurisdiction. I think saying clear error is not really the equivalent well, to what we're talking Your about Honor, here. I'm happy to accept any of those formulations because we think any of those formulations equally apply when you have a suit that is against the President of the United States that is categorically foreclosed by Supreme Court Let me point, Your Honor, to this court's precedent. This court is held in Inri Sewell applying the Supreme Court's decision in the Alkali Association case that if a lawsuit is filed in federal district court that should have been before a federal agency, that is the sort of clear usurpation of jurisdiction, to use your phrase, that is warrants mandamus review. And I Sir, you have a submit, clear, as I understand your position, you have a clear and indisputable right in this case because the judiciary is seeking to assert over the presidency of the United States an authority that has never been asserted or claimed before. That is absolutely right, Your Honor. And the point I was trying to make about Sewell is if it is a clear usurpation of jurisdiction to trench on the primary jurisdiction of a federal agency, an agency that is merely exercising the president's executive power, then surely it is a clear usurpation of jurisdiction to trench upon the president's autonomy himself. The Counsel. president is the chief executive. Counsel, you, you referred to Franklin versus Massachusetts and, and, and cited it, I think, accurately. But there was a it, that left open the possibility of a suit against the president for a ministerial act. And, and, and there's some you know, other cases, the, the Clinton versus New York and the D.C. Circuit case um, against President Nixon. It, if you could address whether you think the relief being sought is ministerial or discretionary. I'd appreciate your position okay. on that. So I have two points about that. First, to directly answer your question, I don't think it, this is ministerial within the meaning of those cases. If you, I think, in fact, their argument that it is, is making the precise error that the Supreme Court in Mississippi versus Johnson rejected. In Mississippi versus Johnson, the plaintiff there tried to say that the president, it was ministerial, because the president, of course, could not act unconstitutionally. The challenge in that case was that the certain Reconstruction Acts were unconstitutional. And they said, well, of course you have to comply with the Constitution, so it's a ministerial duty. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, no. 
That is not what ministerial means. The question is whether there's any discretion. And if there's a reasonable dispute as to whether this act is unconstitutional, then that is not ministerial, it's executive. But the second point I would make about this is that question is a question about whether it would be constitutional to allow a suit against the president. There's an antecedent step that I think is very important. <coughs> at a minimum, before you have to decide that difficult constitutional at a minimum, Congress should have to expressly authorize such a suit. Congress should have to say that the president can be sued for ministerial acts. That's the point of the clear statement requirement that is in Franklin. It's the point of the clear statement requirement that's in Nixon versus Fitzgerald. And it follows from basic canon of constitutional avoidance. Why would this court construe an implied cause of action in equity for the first time in this nation's history to present serious constitutional questions? This court avoids constitutional questions. And that follows also just from basic principles of equity. They're relying on the, uh, the uh, traditional common law equity power to join federal officials. Well, there are two things about that. They can't assert such a history with respect to the president. It's always been lower federal. And second, we know from cases like Grupo Mexicano that the scope of the traditional equitable remedies has to be informed by history. The whole point of the Supreme Court's decision in Grupo Mexicano is that if you're trying to extend a traditional remedy, that has to be done by Congress because of separation of power principles. And if that's true in Grupo Mexicano, where the dispute was over whether pre-judgment creditors or post-judgment creditors could file suit, surely it applies on whether you can extend a cause of action for lower federal officials to the President of the United States. To get well, back we, we're treating this as if it's some ordinary run-of-the-mill case. And it's, it, it is not that. The judiciary is asserting injunctive power over the President of the United States. And not only is it asserting that power, but it's asserting it in an unprecedented way. Because you can understand the role of the judiciary in a case like United States versus Nixon, where it was trying, where the, where the courts were um, aiding in the enforcement of a judicial subpoena in a criminal action. And you can understand cases um, where the courts have stepped in to vindicate rights that have been infringed by government. But this is, this is neither of those. There's no direct, the government is not, not acting directly against any individual. And the government, is, and, and you're not seeking, we're not confronted here with enforcement of a judicial subpoena in a, in a criminal uh, action. What's being asked here is just wholly unprecedented which is that we are to create a cause of action on our own under this emoluments clause. We have no history to guide us. We have no precedent to guide us. No right has been conferred or created by this clause, and no remedy has been spelled out. And in the face of all of those things, we are to proceed alone to tie down the presidency in litigation. That is an excellent summary of our argument, Judge Wilkinson. And I, of all I can say in addition, but let me it, let me ask you with regard. In, let in me ask you. There, yes. There's no question there. Let me ask you with regard. Could he, could he answer my question? Well, I didn't hear a question, Judge. I'm sorry. Please, well, <laughs> if you heard a question, please answer. Well, I I think what I would say is if all of that 
is not enough to warrant mandamus relief. I am just hard pressed to understand how this court in Henry Sewell could said merely trenching on, a on an executive agency's jurisdiction is enough to warrant mandamus review. All the litany that Judge Wilkinson just explained just blows out of the water the case. What is the answer to the question you're giving? I understand what he said. You said you agree with it. What is the answer to the question? That this is exactly the sort of extraordinary usurpation of jurisdiction that warrants mandamus relief. There is no authority, historical authority, to sue the president. No historical authority to have a cause of action to enforce the emoluments clause against anyone. To do all of this and not even allow an interlocutory appeal. It's not only that he refused to so, dismiss so the, the case. So the question goes beyond just whether or not this is something the president would challenge the separation of power. It really goes to the question of is he above the law? And the allegations are here are really essentially discovery that's being sought from third parties, primarily businesses. It's really not a prerogative of the executive branch that's being sought here. In order to tie that in, you've got to tie him in so that ultimately you say whatever the president does puts him above the law and out of the reach of being able to deal with issues that may be squarely there. But let me ask the more fundamental question because you started your argument out to the effect that you're saying they say you can't even be here, uh, which before you even start talking about mandamus, you have to look and determine, well, is mandamus available in the instance where a district court has given a denial of certification? And it's clear that I don't know of another case that's done it in this fashion. If you want to talk about something that's never happened before, the 10 circuits that dealt with, nobody has said a district court can be taken over by a by the, the appellate court. The appellate court, in instance, cannot usurp power in to do it. Congress spoke. And it, and it really comes down to a congressional word, shall. Uh, and, 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 but let me finish. Uh, okay. and, and in an instance of the, the, the court, the <laughs> district court saying denial of certification in that particular instance, there's really no precedent for what's happening here today. That's not true, Your Honor. So uh, let me say three things there's about There's one this. circuit. There is, uh, there, you would have to agree, though, that the weight of the authority is against you on that point. Not and, uh, quite, my word Your Honor. Let me finish. My word is precedent. There's no precedent for this. There may be another circuit, but, but the weight of authority, as Judge Marshall said, goes entirely right. the other way. So let me say <laughs> a couple of things about the weight of authority. First, as Judge Marshall recognized, there is one circuit that has squarely done exactly what which is the 11th Circuit in the Fernandez-Rodriguez case, where the, the 11th Circuit directed a district court to certify. And their only distinction of that case is the district court there hadn't yet ruled on the certification motion. That's a fortiori for us. The 11th Circuit didn't even let the district court exercise its discretion. It thought it was so patently obvious that certification had to be granted that it directed it without even giving the district court the chance to totally screw up, which is what the district court here did. Point two. It is both the D.C. Circuit in the parallel suit and the Fifth Circuit in the McClellan case have done what is essentially the functional equivalent. They said that the district court clearly abused its discretion, and then they remanded for the district court to reconsider. Now, honest, I have a hard time understanding how any honest, reasonable district court judge, in the face of that sort of order, would do anything other than what Judge Sullivan in D.C. did, which is promptly turn around and certify. The only difference between that and this is a completely intransigent judge who could care less that a panel of this court said he clearly abused his discretion. Promptly turn what? around and certify as it was sent back to the district court. Yes. To do it, that wasn't done here. 
Your Honor, I think no. the panel was absolutely right that it is pointless to remand it to the district court to give the How district court. How do we know that? Because all that can happen is the district court can thumb its nose at this court. So what? Do you have sure. any, Mr. Lupin, <laughs> do you have any case where a court of appeals has used mandamus as a vehicle to order a district court to dismiss a case? So in the, the 11th Circuit case. No, no, I'm asking using oh. mandamus to, to grant relief, to grant the oh, substantive sure. yes. relief this of ordering a district court to dismiss a case. This court's decision in Sewell. The, the point of this, the district court decision in Sewell was the case should have been dismissed because it should have been in the NLRB's jurisdiction. Right, but, but no, but I'm saying that the district court in this case made it, went through all the hoops. It did everything it needed to do in order to consider the issue of certification. The case was properly before the district court. It wasn't a question that it should have been in another forum. Our point is that it should be in no forum. Well, it's a fortiori. In, in Sewell, they, the point. point was that the, uh, the district court erred in dismissing and putting the case into an executive agency. And this court granted mandamus to say, no, case should go to the agency. Our point is the suit shouldn't be anywhere. Right, the but the taking president. substantive action, in other words, this court, you're saying this court can use the vehicle of mandamus to decide an issue in the case, essentially just because it disagrees with what the district court no, did. No, Your Honor, I agree, as a lot of the questions have said, that it has to be a clear and indisputable legal violation. But how if did the district court usurp its authority? You still same, haven't told us that. Again, for the same reason that in Sewell, if a district court takes jurisdiction over a case that belongs in front of an administrative agency, this court and the Supreme Court has recognized that's usurping the executive agency's jurisdiction. Has there been a case, can, you be, can we point to any case where the judiciary has asserted the power to enjoin the President of the United States in the exercise of his official duties. You can call it ministerial, you can call it discretionary, but what precedent is there for the, the courts to step in and enjoin the president in the exercise of his official duties? And where is the limiting principle to that? The only case that I am aware of that has done such a thing, and with considering it and holding it at the appellate level, is the 1976 case in the DC Circuit called NTEU. The three times the Supreme Court has considered this issue of whether you can have a suit against the president for his official action, three times it has come up and three times the Supreme Court has rejected it. In Franklin in, in, in Mississippi versus Johnson, it said it was just illegal. In Franklin and in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, it said at a minimum, Congress had to speak clearly. So I think it is absolutely the case that if this court can protect an executive agency's Mr. Mupan, uh, you know, that question sort of raises the issue of redressability and the appropriate scope of any remedy against the president. But you're making an assumption that that would be the, that would be the actual remedy, an injunction against the president. But if I understood the Second Circuit's opinion in a related case, they set out a number of different possibilities, possible remedies, including an injunction not against the president, but against the business hotel itself or the third parties who might be engaged in providing services or paying for services, that would not result in an injunction against the president. I don't think the principle that I've been asserting that the president isn't subject to suit, absent a clear statement of Congress, is limited to injunctions. Well, but I'm just responding to the point about whether or not we necessarily, if this case goes that far, and we're a bit of far afield here, but it's not necessarily the case 
that, it, that the, any remedy would result in a direct injunction against the president. That may be true, Your Honor, and I, I'd be curious to hear what relief they're seeking. But I just to emphasize the point that I made that it doesn't matter what the precise form of relief is, whether it's an injunction or a declaration or anything else. The point is that absent a clear statement from Congress, none of that can run. So what is the, the remedy? President. What is the remedy in this case, then, for a violation? A, you allege, I admit that you, you, don't, you deny that there was a violation. So what's the remedy? Your Honor, at the first question, before you get to whether there's a remedy, is the you, question no, whether you have they have the right to sue in the first No, no, I'm just talking about if, if you deny the fact that there is no judicial remedy, then what remedy is there to control what Judge Wynn has indicated to President well, who might be above first, the law? At the very first step, Your Honor, Congress could presumably authorize someone <laughs> to actually sue over the monitor's clause violation, and then we could have an interesting and difficult constitutional question about whether that lawsuit is permissible. But Congress has not even done that. And at a bare minimum, the separation of powers and the canon of constitutional avoidance say that this court should not allow a suit to proceed against the President of the United States where Congress hasn't even bothered to authorize the suit in the first place. Judge Mott, Mr. Mupan, Mr. Mupan, Mr. Mupan, right here, right yeah. in the center. Yes. Uh, if the emolument clause, first it provides compensation for the President, so it's a provision, and the other is a prohibition of extra compensation. What if Congress decided to reduce the president's salary while he's in office? Then what would be the remedy for the president? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Your Honor. I haven't thought about it. Uh, but you have to be, because you're saying categorically that's an unprecedented suit. That's what you say why we should do it here. And you said Congress hadn't provided a remedy for it, then you suggest Congress would have to do, well, Congress would be the one acting against the president's rights. Wouldn't the courts be the place that he would have to seek remedy? Look, I will say the same exact thing at a, at a, at a high level generality that I said throughout. The question would be, is that suit authorized? You would have to ask, is there a jurisdiction? Is there a cause of action? And I just don't know the answer to those questions. I know there are a lot of federal statutes that govern whether you can challenge like the pay of a federal Employee. Well, it would have to be an answer. Even the judges themselves were able to go to the court to question their compensation. And that very well might be the case. There very well might be a cause well, of there, action. There are, there are cases um, uh, involving constitutional provisions outside the Bill of Rights that have been held to be non-justiciable. Um, the guarantee clause, the ineligibility clause, the incompatibility clause, the impeachment clause, the receipts clause. Um, so, so there could be so-called infringements to all these clauses, but there are many, many clauses that are structural or at least outside the Bill of Rights that the Supreme Court has held uh, to, to be non-justiciable. Look, that's true, Your Honor, but we don't even have to go anywhere near that far to say that at a minimum, before you can have a lawsuit over it, maybe Congress should have to authorize such a suit. Judge Motz, if I can make the last point, as you asked before about the body of case law, and I don't want to miss this, even their cases, their best cases, take, for example, the Seventh Circuit case in Ford, which they cite quite a bit, even that case recognized that there has to be some safety if a district court clearly abuses its discretion in denying 1292. That's not at all it, what the it, court it, said in that case. It, the court really, assumed for the sake of argument that there might be a way to direct mandamus in a situation like this, and it said 
nothing about a clear abuse of discretion. It talked about improper motive, egregious situations. Right. It did not adopt an abuse of discretion. No, so it can't be an abuse of discretion because you need to demonstrate a clear and indisputable right. Again, that's Your Honor, the that's, standard that is just not the language in Cheney. So you don't think you have to have a clear and indisputable right? I think clear and indisputable legal right or clear abuse of discretion are, it's not like uh, uh, mandamus is limited to legal errors. Counsel, is, is the standard you're looking for, the one you used before, totally screwed it up? Is that the way you describe the district court ruling here? I do think that that because is. Because I read the district court opinions with some care, and what I saw was a very reasoned exercise of discretion on this interlocutory opinion question. And I totally understand that you have a good faith disagreement um, and that there is room to debate these issues. But the idea that we are some kind of a roving commission where we're going to grant a petition for mandamus, if someone can convince us that the district court totally screwed up their case, seems to me to open the door very wide. Your Honor, again, all I can say is I do not know how you can reconcile that proposition with me too. Henry Sewell did exactly that. Because they thought the case was in the wrong forum. Nobody thinks that these people filed their lawsuit in the wrong forum, that the district court it's did a, not have jurisdiction to hear a this case. If it, it's even worse if you sue the president when he can't be sued anywhere. Why is it? It makes no sense. And, and that is your position. The president cannot be sued anywhere. Without an express authorization okay. by Congress, he certainly cannot be sued for his official actions. I think that is correct, Your Honor. And... Well, when the, what is an when official? The, uh, what is the official circuit. nature of the action of taking money from foreign governments? Right. Tell so me I'll, what's official so about I'll that. I'll say two things about that, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. First is I think that question is probably best directed to plaintiffs because they've sued him in his official capacity. Well, no, I'm asking you. I'm interested. Right. And the reason why I think they've sued him in his official capacity is because the Emoluments Clause imposes an obligation on him by virtue of his office. Uh, it requires any officer who is covered by the Emoluments Clause to not accept prohibited emoluments. So if uh, these are prohibited emoluments, and if he holds an office of profit or trust, it is by virtue of his office that he can't accept these payments. So it is true that it is it involves his private financial behavior, but it is the only reason his private financial behavior is subject to suit is because he holds his office. That's why it's an official duty, and that's presumably why they sued him in his official capacity. And if you disagree with that, then we have an easy solution to this case. You should just no, I'm not saying I disagree with that. In but you do have an, an, a, a clear and indisputable right when the suit is under a clause that confers no right. I think the that's emoluments clause confers no right upon anyone, and yet we still have a suit against the president under a clause that confers no right and provides no remedy. And I say once again, this is an overextension of judicial supremacy over the office of the presidency. It's unprecedented that we would have something that is not in a, a provision that is not in the Bill of Rights, where there is no direct evidence that the president has directly harmed anyone, and that a suit is generated, essentially, we're up here making it up. We're winging it. There's no history that authorizes it. There's no precedent that authorizes it. There's no right conferred that authorizes it. There's no remedy set forth that authorizes it. We are winging it. And the novelty of this, if this isn't off the rails, 
then I don't know what is. There are, there are other suits involving congressional subpoenas and everything that presents close, uh, closer questions. But this one's a lemon. It's, it's the weakest of the cases that are springing up like Jimson weed against the presidency in this environment. Others may have greater merits, and I hold no, hold no brief for the conduct of this president or of any president, but what I do care about is the future of the judiciary and whether we should be asserting an authority with such a slight and unprecedented foundation as is contended here. Uh, Your Honor, I agree. I think that under Cheney, it would make a mockery of the respect that is due the high office of the president, which must be considered at every stage of the proceedings. That's what Cheney said. But there's not no precedent because no president has done this. Essentially, what, what, is, what you're saying, I understand, is that we have an emoluments clause. No doubt about it. That's the law. That a president can violate it in every instance. You can have a hotel that competitively uh, uh, operates against the state of interest here. You can have you can have uh, interest in which you can invite foreign dignitaries openly to come in and take 500 rooms of the, off of Mar-a-Lago. You can do all of these things, but at the end of the day, you're saying there is nothing you can do about a president if you conceitedly said because this is in a light most favorable violated it in every instance, but your position is nothing can be done. Unless is that correct? Congress authorized My question is, is that correct? In nothing the, can be done to remedy a president who openly and without any, any reservation violate the Monuments Club. Nothing can be done because in your, because the words would be, he is above that law. No. Is that correct? No, it is not correct. It is a law? Your it Honor. is a law? As the law stands right now, just to amend what the judge is saying, there's no new action by Congress. Is there anything that can be done? Not in the judicial remedy, and that does not make him above the law. That is what Cheney and Nixon versus Fitzgerald. That how about in a situation? How about in this situation, where we know that the president <laughs> holds personal disdain for the emoluments clauses? He said. They are phony, your emoluments clause. Let's uh, let Judge King finish the question, please. He said there are phony emoluments clauses, and the president takes an oath to protect, preserve, and defend the Constitution. Uh, he characterizes them as phony emoluments clauses. Now, what's the irrelevancy of that? Your Honor, I think any fair characterization of what he said is he's calling the claims here phony. He's not disputing the existence of the emoluments clauses. He's called them Phony emoluments clauses. I understand, Your Honor, and it was either a tweet or an off-the-cuff statement. And they he are was two, not... two clauses of the Constitution written in 1787 at Philadelphia, not in the Bill of Rights. They were written at Philadelphia in 1787. They've never been amended. And no one is disputing the emoluments clauses exist, and no one is disputing that they are important. And all, I think, any what? fair characterization of what the President was saying is that these claims are phony. Because these claims are utterly without merit, which I do think are true. I'm happy to get into the merits. I know I'm well over my time, but I would be uh, pleased. Which comes uh, down to the bottom line. Could, with respect to the D.C. Circuit case, is it your view when they faced the mandamus question and, and sent it back to the district court, 
Was that an erroneous decision or simply an alternative form of relief? I think that was a permissible exercise of their discretion, Your Honor. I think they also could have done what we were directly asking this court to do. If that's permissible, then there wasn't a clear and indisputable right to mandamus relief. No, I don't think that we... Well, but, then, if there's none, no clear and indisputable right to mandamus relief there, there's none But they denied here. it without prejudice, Your Honor. I beg your pardon? The D.C. Circuit denied it without prejudice. They gave the district court a last chance to avoid a That's error. That's your reading that, of it. But they didn't grant a mandamus relief, right? right. Nor, nor and did you they, said there was no error. No. They denied it without prejudice, Your Honor. And I f feel fairly confident that if the district court there had thumbed his nose at that panel and said, you know what? Not certifying it anyway. I think I would have had a pretty good chance of getting mandamus relief. And so then the question you have to ask yourself is why? Why would you construe a federal statute to put the appellate courts and district courts in that position where an appellate court can conceitedly tell a district court it clearly abuses discretion and then just hope a district court doesn't thumb its nose at it? My friend Judge Keenan had a question that we intercepted. Yeah. You know, Mr. Moon, we've listened to argument for several minutes yet, but you still haven't told us what action was the district court legally required to take? So it, it, The there, theme throughout yeah. your argument is the district court was wrong because there, there isn't two. a cause of action. There are um, two things I think it was clearly legally required to do or at least clearly abused its discretion. One, we think that it should have outright dismissed the suit for a multitude of reasons. Okay, so you disagree with what the district court did? But I don't again, we come back I think it was to clear legal how is that error. usurping his authority? For the same reason, I, I hate to repeat myself, but for the yeah. same reason that it was an usurpation of authority in Sewell for the district court to retain jurisdiction over a case. It okay, has if got we think Sewell's distinguishable, <clears throat> excuse me, do you have any other authority? Because I, I, we, it's silly for us, I think that Judge Keenan's yeah. already pointed out to you what might be right. a distinguishable factor between this case and Sewell. But you have no other authority, right? right? Well, so I was going to say, again, and maybe Judge Harris disagrees with me about this, in the Ford case, when confronted with exactly this fact pattern, right, what do you do if, for example, a district court obviously should have dismissed or at least obviously should have certified? The court suggested it might be a possibility that what you would do, I agree, only as a possibility, that what you would do is actually just mandamus the straight-out denial of the motion to dismiss. So Mr. I agree, it's not, it's not a holding, but even their cases recognize that, and I think there's a good reason for that. Just imagine a simple hypothetical, which in fact isn't even a hypothetical, it's the facts of the Fifth Circuit case we cite them as well. Imagine you had a district court that said the following. I know that circuit precedent requires dismissing the suit. I know, clear as day. I don't care. Circuit precedent. wrong. But that is not what the district court did here. It is a re you might not agree with it. But it's no flapdash opinion. But look, Your Honor, their, their proposition of law, what they are saying is that even on my hypothetical, no relief. Even if a district court just flouts certain precedent and says, I'm just not following it, I don't care. Well, you're turning the argument on its head. You're saying no matter what the district court did, you're entitled to mandamus relief. No, I've said <laughs> repeatedly, and I'll say it again, if this was a reasonable conclusion, if reasonable judges could disagree, then I agree. We don't get mandamus. So if you think what he did is reasonable, I'm not going to get your vote, and I understand that. But, you have to have a clear and indisputable right, and I, not just reasonable. Your Honor, for all the reasons I've said and many of the reasons Judge Wilkinson laid out, I think it is clear and 
And okay. if Your Honor disagrees, then we're going to no, win. I, th I think that's your strongest position, is to just say that this is, goes so far beyond previous exercises of judicial authority, and the suit has such a shallow foundation that there is a clear and indisputable right to have the case dismissed. That's right, Your Honor. And look, again. Mr. Mupan, there's yeah. a, uh, are you familiar with the Schlagenhoff case? The Supreme Court they, there. I, not enough to say yes, but the, I know what the case Supreme you're talking Court about. there authorized and defined a writ of mandamus uh, similar to in Cheney, but it focused on, it said, the writ is appropriately issued when there is a usurpation of power or a clear abuse of discretion. Yes. And your argument, I, as I understand it, is both, that there was a usurpation of power by the district court in, in uh, uh, taking cognizance of these cases. Uh, and in uh, refusing to certify when the district court said there was no disagreement about its conclusion in this case. It, it basically said it was right and no one can disagree with me. Right. And yeah. to, to circle back to Judge Keenan's question, because you've asked a couple of times, what do I think the clear error here was? And it's the two pieces that Judge Niemeyer just said. One, we think it was clearly wrong to not dismiss the case outright. But second, at a minimum, we think it was clearly an abuse of discretion. And as Judge Niemeyer pointed out in the Schlagenau case, and it's repeated in the Cheney case, it is at the minimum a clear abuse of discretion to not even have said that these questions are substantial enough to warrant interlocutory appeal. Virtually everything they are arguing is totally unprecedented. And not only is it totally unprecedented, most of it is squarely in the teeth of Supreme Court precedent. To say that that's not even a substantial legal question that warrants an intermediate interlocutory appellate review in a case where it's the president, where the Supreme Court has said repeatedly that his that respect to the judiciary owes him, it should, must be considered at every stage of the proceedings, including mandamus. The idea that he can't even get an immediate appeal to determine whether a suit against him should be dismissed. The and the threshold. district court, in confronting this issue, basically postponed the immunity question, which we're going to address uh, next, in order to prevent appeal. And in sure connection with the certification, basically answered the core question, is there a substantial ground for a difference of opinion on this? And the court said no, right. even though the court's decision had zero precedent to support it. It had less than zero precedent to support it, Your Honor, because on standing, it was squarely in the teeth of the only other case that had addressed the issue. The district court in the SDNY had agreed with us that there was no standing and no uh, zone of interest. That's the only issue, the only case it had against it. Uh, I mean, it had available at the time, and right. it basically still said right. there's no reasonable ground for disagreement, saying right. the uh, uh, Second Circuit District Court. Uh, was right. uh, and now, of course, obviously on appeal, the Second Circuit reversed that, and this court reversed it. So now we have dueling district court decisions, dueling court of appeals decisions. The idea that anyone could say in a suit against the president that that's not a substantial legal question that warrants intermediate interlocutory. And then we have the I think DC DC Circuit saying that the failure to certify in a very similar context was a clear abuse of discretion. Clear abuse of discretion, Your Honor. That's right. And Judge Watts, again, I understand it's not this case. I understand I'm saying a hypothetical, but the fact of the matter is their legal position would mean that even if a district court just said, I'm not applying circuit precedent, I don't, I just don't, I think circuit precedent's wrong, the Supreme Court will vindicate me, not a substantial legal question, certification denied. Their position is nothing this court can do about it. You, you don't that have a case, you don't have a case from this circuit because the underlying opinion has been vacated 
Tell me, uh, what do you say are those official duties that would be impaired uh, if the plaintiffs did get, uh, what would be the president's official duties that are being impaired if the plaintiff got the request of relief? Well, so I, there are two different aspects of that question, Your Honor. In terms of the relief, it's just, it's imposing restrictions, whether it's through declaration or injunctive relief, on his financial arrangements because he holds office. But let's not skip to the relief because I think a very significant aspect of the case. So. Tell me, if there was relief, what duties would be impaired? What official duties by the president would be impaired? Again, Your Honor, I just told you. In other words, in other words what difference would make the president in terms of how he performs his duty if he got the relief here? He's being penalized for office by being forced to divest what his assets. What official duties would be impaired by the president if the requested relief was granted here? Your Honor, I will say it again. There's nothing more I can say. So if you don't find the Is the answer none? No, the answer is that you're penalizing him for holding office by making him divest his assets. If that's not a penalty on his official action, Your Honor, you know, not to be too poor about it, but if someone told you that you can no longer be a federal judge unless you gave up all your money, I think most people would think that that is impairing your official actions. It is that's not the relief that's requested. No. So I, again, I'd be happy to hear what relief they're asking because, yeah, as you may be aware, it was not at all. But you think yeah, let's, 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 uh, yeah. stop doing what you're doing right. to be injunctive right. relief? Yeah. What about that? Hmm? Injunctive relief, what if you say you can't do it anymore, just don't do that anymore. Not going to worry about what you've done. What duties are going to be impaired? Your Honor, I can't give you a better answer than what I already gave you. The other thing I will tell you, though, that I do think is very important is you have to remember that there's going to be litigation before we get to the relief. I have to go back to what you said to Judge Wynn about asking him, telling him he can't be a federal judge unless he gave up all his money is the issue here. It's not. It's telling him... He can't be. He can't use his federal judgeship to make money. That's what we're talking about. Fair enough, and that's still, I think, clearly an, an incursion on his official power. Right? It is restricting what? his ability to engage in financial to transactions because the presidency he is the president. to make money. I'm, and look, to be totally clear, that's not an accurate description of the facts. But I, even if you assume, well, neither facts, is what I'm just saying. What you said yes. to Judge Wynn is not. Accurate. That's not, at least in my yeah, view, no, what. Fair enough, Your Honor. Okay, I, then go I, on I mean, to whatever you were wanted to say. Whatever their fact theory is of what an emolument is, their point is because he holds office, he can't engage in certain financial behavior. My only point is that is obviously an incursion on his official power because it's penalizing his financial behavior because he holds office. Thank but you, counsel. Counsel. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, and may it please the court, Lauren Ali Khan for the District of Columbia in Maryland. I want to start this morning with why mandamus is not appropriate to certify the district court's decisions under Section 1292B, because I do believe that's dispositive of the case. Of course, that's one of many issues in the case, and so if this court goes further, it should deny the request to mandamus dismissal because plaintiffs have standing and a cause of action to seek equitable relief against the president under the Constitution's Emoluments Clauses, and they adequately stated the claim that the president is receiving foreign and domestic emoluments through the Trump International Hotel. So to begin with Section 1292B, it's a limited exception to the final judgment rule. When Congress contemplated it, it had a proposal before it that would allow interlocutory appeal solely at the discretion of the Court of Appeals. That's similar to what we see in Federal Rule 
Civil Procedure 23F. And Congress rejected that and rejected it at the recommendation of the Judicial Conference because this was proposed by the Judicial Conference. And what they wanted was a rule that required the concurrence of both the District Court and the Court of Appeals before an interlocutory appeal could be taken. Well, let me, let me ask you, as a, ask your opposing counsel about this D.C. Circuit case in a very similar setting. And the D.C. Circuit determined that the District Court's order in that case, orders, squarely met the criteria for certification under 1292B and it abused its discretion in not so certifying the case before he sent it back. So was that an erroneous decision by the D.C. Circuit and how is it different from this case? So I, I do think that it was erroneous in this way. It's because when the district court has declined to certify, that is the first and last word on the matter. So they were wrong. So I do believe so. But I think what's important about the D.C. Circuit's decision is that it did not take jurisdiction under 1292B. All that it did was send it back to the district court for reconsideration. I think if this court disagrees with me or thinks that the D.C. Circuit got it correct, that's the most this court could do. Except the court did say the 1290, the failure to certify was an abuse of discretion. And if you look at 1292B, it has three requirements, only one of which is a core requirement, is that there is a substantial ground for a difference of opinion. Of course, the other two, it has to be a controlling question of law and nobody's disputed that. And it has to materially advance the litigation. But the core question is whether there is substantial ground for a difference of opinion. If the court finds that that is so, then it must, not may, it must certify. The statute is mandatory. And so the notion that you say that the court can just look at this and say, I choose not to do it, is not on the table. 1292B does have structure. And in this case, the question was whether the district court adequately addressed the question whether there was a substantial ground for a difference of opinion. And both the D.C. Circuit and the panel opinion in this case concluded that the district courts misinterpreted that or misapplied that or ignored it and therefore should have certified. And the D.C. Circuit suggested to send it back and have it certified. And as you know, it was certified. And it's back up. And they just argued that, what, last week in the D.C. Circuit. And here we basically said that we could send it back and have it come back up, which was sort of a ministerial task after we had found that they wrongfully denied certification. And we just applied the certification. But the question is, if you would wish us to follow the D.C. practice, we have a petition for writ of mandamus before us. We could say, we could, I mean, 1292B certification denial before us. We could do exactly what the D.C. Circuit did, send it back and tell the district judge to certify. Is that what you want? Now, Judge Niemeyer, there's a lot in your question, so I want to make sure I address it. So first, yes, I agree that 1292B has structure. The district court has to be of the opinion that it meets the criteria. And here the district court, in a thorough opinion, went through each of the grounds, each of the four grounds advanced by the president for why 1292B certification was appropriate and was not of the opinion that they were controlling questions of law as to which there was a substantial ground of opinion that would materially advance litigation. And as he noted, and I think every court that's considered the question has agreed, all three need to be certified. How could the court address a lawsuit under the Monuments Clause 
on which there's only one opinion in the country, Southern District of New York, uh, and uh, which went against what the district court said, and say there's no diff uh, substantial ground for difference of opinion. It was creating a lawsuit out of whole cloth. The very arguments Mr. Mupan made here were made to the district court. You can't sue the president. The clause doesn't create rights. Uh, uh, it goes on and on. And yet there can be no ground for a difference of opinion. So and uh, everybody's sort of shocked at that notion that you could make that finding, especially when the only case on that point is against the district judge, and he still says there's no difference. Uh, why can't that be an abuse of discretion? Well, the district court acknowledged the fact that there was the SDNY case. Yeah, gave it the back now, of the hand. He basically is, said without analysis, oh, that's not applicable here because uh, it involved uh, uh, restaurants and private hotels as opposed to the international hotel in Washington. Respectfully, Judge Niemeyer, what he said is that uh, it's a controlling question of law as to which there's a disagreement of opinion when there's a question about what law applies, not how the law can be applied to the facts. And so there was no dispute between the district court's opinion here and the SDNY opinion that competitor standing doctrine is alive and well in the Supreme Court. And so merely because of a difference of how the law is applied to the facts, and I think this comes from the McFarland case that's cited in the president's opinion. Ms. Alikin, um, it's an interesting discussion about um, interlocutory appeals and mandamus and the rest. Um, I fear we can get a little bit lost in the weeds. And before we start off on this journey, I would like to have some idea of where we would end up and whether there is even the, the slightest merit to this suit at all. And a basic question that I have is where in all of this suit, where is Congress? And I, I have a feeling that Congress has just been left on the back doorstep to just freeze in the cold. Um, there's no congressional subpoena here as there is in, in some of the other cases. There's no congressionally created cause of action. If Congress were concerned about the emoluments clause, it could um, have an emoluments provision inserted as an article of impeachment. It could have passed a disclosure statute of some sort with respect to emoluments. Um, it could have established a framework that would have given the president or whatever office holder, some idea of what an emolument even is. But the, what concerns me about this case is that Congress is, is wholly absent from it. We're just proceeding on our own, on our own toot. Without a, without a congressional subpoena, without a congressional cause of action, without any kind of action of any sort with respect to emoluments. The framers, Judge Wilkinson, put into the Constitution two provisions preventing the acceptance of emoluments. It's up to this court to decide how to inform and interpret those clauses. Congress, to be sure, has the ability to consent to foreign emoluments, and I think it does have a framework. No, but we, you say interpret it, but we... 
you're asking us to sketch something off a completely blank slate without any kind of congressional input at all. And, you know, in the Steel Sea case, Justice Robert Jackson counseled against a single branch of government charging headlong into matters of the highest moment all by itself. Now, in that case, it obviously concerned the actions of the executive. And how much more, but how much more true is that lesson in a case where the least accountable branch of government, the least democratically accountable branch of government, the federal judiciary is charging off on its own without any backup or input from the legislative branch. Isn't that, isn't that problematic? So I have two responses to that, Judge Wilkinson. The first is that it's longstanding that, petition, or that plaintiffs may seek injunctive relief to enforce specific constitutional provisions. That we know from Armstrong, Congress can take away, and it hasn't here. So that's the input of Congress. Secondly, we have the framework. Mm. Congress, through things like the Foreign Gifts and Decorations Act, the executive branch through the Office of Legal Counsel, the Comptroller General, opinions from the legislature, have informed the emoluments clauses. And what we know is No, that but many of these structural clauses are not self-executing. And it's crucial that the emoluments clause is not placed in the Bill of Rights and it confers no rights. And many, and I would say most, of the provisions in the Constitution outside the Bill of Rights are not self-executing. It depends on something that Congress has to do to, um, to, to get the ball rolling, if you will. And to say that we can do all of this on our own, we're coming to a position where our political differences, and there's a political overlay to this whole action, um, make no doubt. But our political differences are going to, are seeming to me to be increasingly resolved through litigation rather than through legislation and elections. And that's what you're asking us to do, which is to really undertake an unprecedented assertion of judicial authority. And, 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 and as I say, we are coming to the point where elections and legislations are becoming relatively less important and, and, and judicial edicts are becoming relatively more important. And we're again acting on our own. How much on what should be so much firmer ground if we were acting in concert with Congress or arm in arm with Congress rather than just charging ahead on our own motion without any backup or foundation. Now, Judge Wilkinson, I think the Supreme Court addressed this in Free Enterprise when it said that, as a general matter, that you don't have to look at constitutional provision by constitutional provision. And so we know that in Free Enterprise, you can look at the Appointments Clause. In Bond, you can look at Tenth Amendment questions. In Shada, you can look at bicameralism. So I don't believe it's limited just to the Bill of Rights. But I think that it's longstanding where a federal officer is acting ultra-virus. The president is doing here by accepting emoluments despite two very clear constitutional provisions that equitable relief is available to enjoin that. And so we think that we are on firm footing, dating back to Young, to McNulty, to a series of cases, 
in which courts have not hesitated to restrain unconstitutional action by federal officers. Um, well, none of the none of those involved them. I think we're stating the obvious that all those none of those cases um, involve the presidency. They are uh, federal officers or sometimes state officers in general. And as as I read the cases, you know, all of those fall into one of two buckets. They fall into a, a either the bucket there's an underlying cause of action which we don't have in the emoluments clauses. And number two, they fall into the bucket of using um, a, a litigation to um, address uh, the defense to an enforcement action. So all those cases, A, don't involve the president, and B, fall into those two buckets, which this doesn't fall into. And when you turn to the precedent that relates to the president, you know, th th it seems to me the only sliver of an argument is possibly the notion that there's some ministerial act here, but there's no Supreme Court case that says that squarely either. So, I mean, to, to refer to those cases, we're really talking apples and oranges, aren't we? So I don't think so. And I have sort of three responses. You know, the first, as the D.C. Circuit has held in both NTEU and Clinton versus Swan, right. the fact that there's no subordinate official to sue does not act as a bar against proceeding against the president. When there is, for example, the Department of Commerce or a lower federal official, obviously you would prefer that the relief run against them. But NTEU squarely says that it would exalt form over substance were you to say that the president himself is immune simply because there's nobody else to sue. And that's a district, that's a DC circuit that's case. That's a DC circuit case. And they repeated similar language mm -hmm. in Swan versus Clinton. Um, and then next, about the cause of action question, I think the Supreme Court was quite clear in Armstrong that unless Congress has taken away the ability to exercise traditional equity jurisdiction, it exists to enjoin ultra-nearest actions by federal officers. And so I do think, I think those are the two strands of your question, and I think the case law squarely is in our favor on that. L let me ask you one other question um, related to something you said earlier. You said there's two, two times the uh, Constitution deals with emoluments. There's actually three. Is it your position that the definition of emolument in Article 1, Section 9 is the same one you're asserting in this case? So, yes, there are two provisions that prevent, Judge Quattlebaum, the acceptance mm -hmm. of emoluments, the foreign and the domestic emoluments clauses. There is also the um, clause that talks about the emoluments of office. Are you saying so, that? I'm sorry, go ahead. So, Judge Quattlebaum, I think that emolument, that term, means profit, gain, or advantage in all three of those constitutional terms. We know, however, when they talk about the office or the emoluments whereof, they're tying it specifically to the particular office. We don't see that in either the foreign or the domestic emoluments clauses. And so that's how we know that Congress, that the framers were intending that to be given its broadest reading. And so those are broad prophylactic provisions that prevent the president from doing precisely what he's doing here. So your, your position is emolument in Article 1, Section 9 should be read with the same definition that you say applies in Article 2, Section 1 and Article 1, the, Section 6? So the definition of the word emolument does not change, but it's given context by the words around it. And so if you have emolument of office, then you know it's tied to the office. But when you have, for example, the foreign emoluments clause, which is any emolument or present using any four times, then you know that you're supposed to be reading that broadly. So obviously the words of any particular constitutional provision have to be read in the context of the company in which they And in the foreign and domestic emoluments clauses, we know that they were meant to be quite broad and reach any profit, gain, or advantage. So if the president were to buy a a bond issued by a locality or a state. Under your definition, it would appear that the interest that the president would receive on that bond is an emolument. So not necessarily, Judge Agee. And I think this follows from Noel Canning, which says we look at not just the text, but history and practice. 
And we have here, the OLC has issued several opinions that deal with issues like well, Your definition on the seems to run contrary to that. I mean, you keep emphasizing any, and you have a very broad definition of that. And you just said that, well, not necessarily. So how would you differentiate one state bond from another state bond under the domestic emoluments clause using your definition? And so, Judge Agee, I think how you would do it is to look at whether or not the president is getting any particular type of advantage that's not available to everybody else. If it is the same interest on the bond that any bondholder is entitled to, I think following from the rate OLC opinion, which dealt with pension payments, which are quite similar, I think that would not fall afoul of the emoluments clauses. However, if the president was receiving a particularly high interest rate or something different that was you know, a discretionary decision of the state to give him something that other people weren't entitled to, that would certainly be a profit gain or advantage that could fall within the emoluments clauses. So your definition now, unlike the complaint, is a profit gain or advantage that is different than what everyone else gets? So I think it's a profit gain or advantage, and then I think under no handing, you look to how the Comptroller General and the Office of Legal Counsel have interpreted it to give it context. And so what we know from those opinions is that when decisions are non-discretionary, for example, if the President were to get a driver's license, then that's not going to be something that is a profit or advantage that is going to pin. It's something that is mutually and non-discretionally available to everyone else. So it's so not any profit. It's only certain profit. Well, I think it's not a profit or advantage when it's something that is available to everybody else. Well, it has on a to be a profit basis. if you if you've bought something and you're getting a return on your money. It has to be a profit. So the Reagan OLC opinion thoroughly analyzes this and says because it is something that is a non-discretionary determination that is readily available to everyone else in that pool. Here it would be the bondholders, but it doesn't run afoul of the emoluments clause. Well, what about Whether the situation where the somebody comes into office? and owns assets that have been giving them dividends. In this case, the hotel was in existence before the president took office, and he was receiving the income from the hotel before, like anybody else who would own a hotel or a motel or any other business enterprise. And Does that fall into the class of available to anybody else? When Before he was president, he was absolutely entitled to foreign and I understand, but he didn't change uh, 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 his status there Except that, as I understand it, he's not even receiving those benefits. He's uh, uh, doing something else with them, donating them to the government or whatever it is. But set that aside for the moment. Uh, he did, his status with respect to the hotel is the same as it was when he was a private citizen. And every private citizen who invests in something is entitled to receive the return. So he just held, held on to that asset while he's president, and he's getting the very same uh, absent his a donation now, he's getting the very same benefit that any other member of the public would. Uh, what I'm trying to do is to find out what the scope of your distinction in response to Judge Agee's question is, because it seems to me he's in the same class of persons that receives interest on bonds. I, and you're saying bonds don't apply, but yet income from the hotel applies. So and I, I don't I know where you get that from the Constitution. I, I don't see I respectfully it. disagree, Judge Niemeyer. What changed when the president became president was that the emoluments clauses suddenly applied to him, which means that he needs to cut off any receipt of Well, then why doesn't it cut profits? him off from the bond uh, interest? In other words, you were, in response to the question, and this whole may be immaterial, the whole operation here we're talking about, but uh, I'm just taking you to task for you're now creating these niceties in what is an emolument, and you're saying the interest on a bond is not an emolument, uh, 
for some reason, I don't know why, under your definition, it seems to me it would cover that and cover everything else. And I'm happy to explain why. If the interest on the bond is a fixed amount that he is, whether he's president or whether he's not, and it's the same amount anybody else receives, it's a type of non-discretionary benefit that time and again the Office of Legal Counsel and the Comptroller General have found not to be emoluments. If the president, by virtue of becoming president, and especially because he has made himself available to accept and, in fact, invited people... So let me understand. I want to make sure I understand on this. What What is it you're asking us to do? So I think that this court has a wide range of injunctive remedies available. I think the cleanest would be divestment from the hotel. Because that would cut off the faucet. To do what with respect to the Trump Hotel? That he would divest himself from the hotel. So well, what do you want us to do in this appeal? In this appeal, <laughs> you're I not asking abs- us to no. divest anything. No, no, you're asking this, us no. to. What? You're asking us to rule on the 1292B yes. question. And I would ask the court but, to, to no, deny. Wanted, the- before starting a journey, I'd love to have some idea of where I'm going to end up, and I want to know. It, it goes to the whole redressability aspect of standing. And I would like to know exactly what you would want us, what you're asking. I mean, we, we, we can't enjoin foreign visitors from using the hotel. We, you can't put a single asset in a, in a blind trust. You, what are we, to close the hotel for the president's term? To, to um, cut off any beneficial interest that the president has in the hotel? Um, it strikes me that these are pretty... Um, bold examples of interference to undertake without some support from Congress. But what what do you want from us? What are you asking us to do? So I think there are... Wilkinson has a great question. And in answering that, I would ask that you also address first, what is the injury that you allege occurs here? And then tell us how does that injury get addressed? Sure. So if so I may get away from bonds and things like that. If I may take the questions in order, I think Judge Moss and Judge King were asking what I would like the court to do here in this case. And that would be to deny the mandamus petition because we do not think it's available to certify. And that's all you want us to do. All I want you to do, yes. And secondarily, because as the D.C. Circuit found, there's not a clear and indisputable right to mandamus relief of the underlying dismissal. Well, where do now, we end up? Where? What? What is? What is the? Uh, if, you know, you don't get on a train unless you know the destination. And so to answer Judge Wilkinson, your question about what we want at the end of litigation, injunctive relief that addresses the emoluments violations. I think that divestiture... We don't even know what an emolument is. is it, I mean, is an emolument... If, if, he, if the president keeps the Trump Hotel open um, and, and has a beneficial interest in whatever remuneration comes from that. Is that an emolument? I, I, I have no idea if, 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 if that is an emolument and we're sort of making it up, whether it is or it isn't, uh, aren't we making a ruling that is going to make public service very inhospitable to, to people with a business background, people with with a successful businessman or not so successful businessman, will they even want to go into public service if there's going to if if their beneficial interest is going to be cut off if they're going to have a divestiture which is traditionally disfavored in equity at a fire at some sort of fire sale? Are we making the public sector and public service increasingly hostile to the? Um, to, to those with a business background. Obviously, 
that's only one of many, many backgrounds that should inform governance. But we're trying to erect bars and hurdles to those with business experience getting into public service because the one thing they would like to know is have some sort of certainty as to what to do and what would happen with their invest with their investments and their assets. And we're providing nothing but the way oh, by way of certainty, but a gigantic cloud of uncertainty which cannot help but operate as an impediment to those with a business background seeking public office. So I think there's a lot in your question, Judge Wilkinson. So I can start with, there are federal officials with business backgrounds that deal with the emoluments clauses all of the time. That's why we have a body of Office of Legal Counsel precedent involving everyone from the president down to former military officials who want to live in foreign countries. We also have the backdrop of all the Comptroller General opinions that give context to the emoluments clauses. The Office of Was government- President Carter in violation of the emoluments clause when he continued to have a beneficial interest in the peanut farm during... He- he put his peanut farm into a blind trust. And so I'm not talking about the meaning of emoluments at the margins. What we're talking about here is that the president is using the hotel to solicit foreign and domestic business that we know is flowing directly to He's it. He's keeping the hotel open at a market rate. What is, why is that using the hotel to do this or that or whatever? So a, a that co- might be where all of the problems that Judge Wilkinson has outlined um, might be a problem that you would have down the road. Absolutely. And we, we aren't deciding this case today, are we? And that is my, my next response to Judge Wilkinson, Judge Motz, is that we are at the inception of litigation. All we have done is clear the motion to dismiss threshold. We have propounded subpoenas that do not go to the president's internal affairs, so I think this puts this case much far afield of Cheney. And if we cannot establish any of our, the aspects of our litigation at summary judgment, or if we prevail, the president has the ability to come back to this court on an appeal from a final judgment and raise all of the questions that he is raising now. Well, I, counsel, I, let's assume that you... I'm, I'm sorry. Counsel, if I may, I'd love for you to address Judge Diaz's question (laughs) from earlier. He suggested that um, the end of the day, and I understand your divestiture uh, suggestion for an injunction, Judge Diaz suggested that there might be uh, injunctive relief that you're seeking in this suit that does not run to the president, but instead runs to a a corporate entity or or some third party. Um, Is is that part of the claim that you've made, is a a third party injunction? So I, I think it's possible. The Second Circuit had a couple of different varieties. You know, we think divestment is the cleanest option, but all we want to do is separate the foreign and domestic government profits from the president. And so that can be accomplished in several you, ways. Do you need to do that? Do you need to have the third parties uh, in order to have an injunction running against them? So, I mean, respectfully, I think that the Second Circuit's third party injunction is a bit curious because the president <clears throat> is the party in the case. We do think that divestiture against the president is something that is not foreclosed by Supreme Court president and is something that in equity to stop an ultra-virus act is, is absolutely well, available well, to us. But also, this will be framed, going back to Judge But the, the president is the, the party to this case. There's not a, the, 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 the third party is not a party to the case. It's the president of the United States that's the, that's the defendant in the case. That's the party. And Judge Wilkinson, that's why I'm not advancing what the Second Circuit had in its footnote. What I'm saying is there's a variety of options that will be informed, as Judge Mops notes, by the litigation and the facts as they develop on the ground. I have, a, the question. Is- I have a question about that, counsel. You noted we're at the outset. And I'm curious, actually, if that's true or, or why that's the case. If the monuments mean what you you say they mean, and the district court adopted your definition, 
then why aren't you entitled to relief now? What do you need in discovery uh, to get an injunction? So, Judge Rushing, we've made allegations that foreign and domestic governments have been spending money at the hotel, or, for example, that the GSA lease is an emolument. We have propounded discovery to try and determine whether those allegations have substance. If they do, then we believe we would be entitled under our definition of emolument. If, as a result of this targeted discovery, mm -hmm. which I must add does not go to the office of the president, if the result of that is that we can prove our claims, I think we go forward. But I if guess, it isn't, I guess my question is, your definition of emolument is any gain or profit, right? So if, if foreign officials spending money at the hotel, which you have newspaper reports saying they are, um, then that the gain flowing to someone who has an interest in the hotel, um, you say is satisfied under your definition. Um, so I don't, I guess I'm curious what, what discovery would produce for you um, other than you've kind of already answered the legal question in the district court, right? So I think newspapers alone are not discovery that shows that sure. our allegations are, are proven. I think that we feel very confident that we will be able, moving forward, to prove our allegations. And I guess so you don't need much, though, is my question, right? If you don't, you're not trying to get damages, you just... You need one instance, right, really, to get an injunction? And I think that's all the more reason that this court shouldn't be exercising jurisdiction now, because we think this case could be very straightforward, could be resolved quickly on motions for summary judgment, and then if the president is dissatisfied, or if we are, but we could said, return to the court. You said court. you think it'll take about six months of discovery. That's not particularly quick. Well, so I confess I'm no trial lawyer, but in my limited experience, discovery takes a lot longer than six months in a routine mm. business case. And so, I mean, we think we can... Is this a routine business case? No, we, we think this can proceed expeditiously, which is why I think six months discovery and getting to summary judgment quickly in the service of answering the question of whether the president is violating the emoluments clauses is not something like the protracted multi-year discovery process that I'm familiar with seeing when I look at trial records. And Let so me, if I could ask one other, you, uh, back to your, your suggestion that divest Investment might be a relief that you say is the cleanest. If 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 the president, uh, putting aside for the sake of discussion the the earlier preliminary points, if if that were to be done, that would be done by the president individually, correct? Absolutely. But the emoluments clauses, and I think this is not unique in the Constitution. Are, are clauses that affect an individual's private behavior by virtue of their official position. Well, my my point though. The divestiture would be done by the president as an individual. Am I right about that? If that's what you seek and we got past all these other hurdles and that's what was ordered? Certainly. I mean, the president is, so, is at the end of the day. So an you individual. would seek essentially an, uh, uh, an injunction at the end of the day that requires the president individually to do something? Yes, by virtue of the fact that the emoluments clauses apply to him in his official capacity. And he's not a party in his individual capacity to this case. So the emoluments clauses, I think much like um, the incompatibility clause, apply to the private behavior of individuals by virtue of their uh, federal office. And so the emoluments clauses only apply to the president as an individual because he is president. And so asking him to divest the hotel or whatever the ultimate outcome might be is no different from any federal <clears throat> official. And, and I think the OLC opinions make this quite clear, that the emoluments clauses apply to private conduct. I mean, there are, there are OLC opinions that say it was okay um, for the Prince of Prussia to give gifts to people. So, I mean, I mean, those are helpful to us to look at, but I don't think they really bind us a whole lot. So no, certainly they're not binding. But under Noel Canning, I think they inform the practice and I think also we know that federal officials, because the Foreign Emoluments Clause applies to every federal officeholder, including all of you judges, have to interact with these questions and go to offices of government ethics to figure out how to deal with this conduct. And yes, sometimes that involves um, affecting your own private conduct to make sure that 
foreign and domestic officials cannot ingratiate themselves to the individual in the private conduct. So I do see that I'm out of time, but I do want to get back to the fact that I think that this court should not reach any of these interesting questions at this point because we are on a mandamus petition of 1292B certification. Uh, under the relief that you're proposing, uh, if the president were to transfer his ownership interest to his son, um, that would end it, right? Absolutely. Assuming his son is not right, a, just, uh, a let state me, official, let me, foreign I, official. I, I want to lead up to something. Um, the hotel would still be called the Trump Hotel, right? And you would expect that foreign officials will still spend their money there. But instead of the money going to the hotel, uh, the money goes to the president's son, right? And Under that relief? Yes. Okay. Um, so... We have a hotel in Washington, it's called the Trump Hotel, where the profits are being spent by foreign officials and the profits go to the president's son and the people keep coming. How is the state of Maryland adversely affected by the fact that the money's going to the son as opposed to going to the father? So respectfully, Judge Niemeyer, I think that poses a hypothetical that's that it doesn't square with... Well, it's a hypothetical, with, except that's what you're requesting. But it doesn't square with the doctrine of competitor standing. What of course it doesn't. It, it, is there is no demo demonstrable, logical, economic effect that the state of Maryland is hurt by the fact that there is a dividend or a profit of some kind paid by the hotel to the president as opposed to paid to his son. Right. The yeah. competition interest that is being talked about in this case is the existence of the hotel named the Trump Hotel in Washington in competition with the facilities that are owned by the District of Columbia and Maryland. No, it is the ability of foreign and domestic officials to ingratiate the president specifically by tendering emoluments. And at you think hotel. that's going to change, right? But, uh, the fact that the president doesn't get right now, as a matter of fact, uh, I understand the president doesn't get any of those profits from the foreign agents. So instead of his donating them, he just gives his interest to his son. It's not going to change a thing. It's, we're under the same status quo, and the state of Maryland's interest is so attenuated, it goes through the fact that, okay, that somehow is going to increase the benefits to the convention center in Maryland. And therefore, the state of Maryland has an interest because now the hotel's competitive interest is diminished, and therefore Maryland's interest is increased, and Maryland now has a standing. That's their injury. That's the competitive injury that's alleged. Our competitive, I can't figure that out. Right, our competitive injury is not being able to compete on equal footing because we can offer the same types of amenities as the Trump International Hotel and our competitor processes, but we cannot offer the ability to ingratiate individuals to the president. If you remove the president from the equation, you've taken that You're not removing the president from the, the equation. But the president you, can still invite him there. The pre, all you're removing is a stream of income that goes from the hotel to him as an owner. And if we divest and have it go to his son, he, he assigns it to his son, it's still the hotel, and he can still ask the prince of Saudi Arabia or whatever, uh, you ought to come and stay in the hotel. And is that an emolument? And he's not the recipient of the profits, and so then uh, it's not an emolument. And that, that adversely affects Maryland because his son's getting it, not him? It would cure the competitive injury, which is the inability to compete on equal footing because we cannot offer it the opportunity to tender It doesn't change the competitive formula. There's no calculus in which that transfer from the father to the son 
changes the competitive analysis. I mean, I That's what the Second Circuit dissent said. I, I respectfully disagree, Judge Niemeyer, because you're presuming that no economic actors would change their behavior if they didn't have the ability to ingratiate themselves to the president and the president specifically. Well, they're still going to ingratiate. They're going to the hotel so the son gets a profit and the president's asking them to come. And while we might find that conduct unsatisfactory, the Constitution doesn't speak to it. What the Constitution speaks to is not having the president in his own capacity, through his own private businesses, getting and receiving foreign and domestic profits. In other words, that, the Moments Clause applies to the president. Absolutely. Not other folks. He could ask them to go a whole bunch of other clubs, and it, as long as it's not the president. You may get a benefit from it. But let me ask this question, because it is, I'm just curious from the opponent's position on this. Even if you went to discovery, proved everything there and more of what was going on, my understanding is that the position of the president, you can't do anything about it. Because Congress hasn't acted, so there's nothing you can do. Is that true? I think that's his I position. I mean, the worst case scenario. Don't, don't take the minimal scenario scenarios been asked. Go to the worst. President gets up there and says that out on, on loudspeaker to everybody. If you come to my, my hotel, it's a good thing. And I need you to come here and advertise and, and just, just be here. Nothing can be done. Is that the end of the answer? That is absolutely his position. And I think that is squarely foreclosed by Armstrong and a long lineage of cases that allow equitable relief to enjoin ultra-various no, actions that by is, federal respectfully, officers. Respectfully, that is, that is not his position. His position is not that nothing can be done. His position is that there is a political process whereby something can be done. His position is that there is a Congress that whereby something can be done. His position is that there's a court of a public opinion by which something could be done. When the, the president wanted to hold a G7 convention at Doreal or whatever, there was a, there, people didn't set, throw up their hands and say there's nothing that can be done. There was immense uh, pressure brought against what was an, an overstep in using that particular piece of private property for a piece of public, for public business. But that puts, that shows you that yes, something can be done. Litigation is not the only way to getting something done because there was a, an immediate corrective to that Doreal business which caused the president to, to back off from what many in Congress across party lines thought was a terribly inadvised step, but it isn't fair to his position to say that it's nothing can be done. It's just that there are other avenues than this particular manufactured suit. So I, let, me, let me be clear, because I think Judge Wilkinson makes a good point. We're not talking about nothing can be done, but let's speak to reality. Essentially, Everything, even the Doreal instance, is something the president chose to do. No one could do anything about it. President, the Congress hadn't done anything. Public opinion can be there. What I'm saying is that the equitable powers, of course, that separate branch of government, if you have a Congress that's absolutely inactive, and I think we can all accept that's probably the case here, a president who takes, goes right up to the line or right over the line, you, this court and the courts, as I understand it, the courts can do nothing about it. That is what I understand his position to be. And Judge Wilkinson, the fact that there might be a court of public opinion does not deprive this court of equity jurisdiction. The fact that there are multiple ways to skin the cat does not mean that this court should not act. Except when the, the Constitution designs mechanisms, and the mechanism the Constitution designs with respect to the president 
is not to have him engaged in private litigation, and but to impeach him if there's a problem. He can be removed from office if the, uh, or he can be voted out of office. But to sue the president uh, is, a, uh, is a, a matter uh, that is unplowed ground, and under the structure of the Constitution, the Supreme Court has not been very kindly to that. I think and now we have uh, this district court that says uh, uh, we can sue the president because that's what I think. The Supreme Court's decisions in Nixon versus Fitzgerald and Clinton versus Jones, I think, directly speak to this. The president is not immune from judicial process in all circumstances. And so I think here, especially when you're not looking at something within the inner workings of the official office of the president, we're talking about things that are farther up the margins and that are expressly prohibited by the Constitution. I think we're just back in the Armstrong territory of this court's equity jurisdiction to enjoin ultra-theorist action. But my view is not that the courts are powerless. The courts are not powerless. The, the courts can do a lot, but we're in a far stronger position if we just have the tiniest bit of guidance and cooperation with Congress. You do things in, in governance in conjunction with the other branches. You don't just go it alone. We're in our weakest possible posture in this case, and I fear that we're going to be tossed into the partisan scrum, which is un, un, unfortunate because I think that when partisan fevers grip the country the way it is, it is best sometimes for the courts to back off and say, we don't want to be part of it. We want to be dedicated to what we all are dedicated to, which is the rule of law, and I can't see how the rule of law is vindicated by a suit that is wholly unprecedented um, in nature and that is taken on a solo basis. We're flying solo and, and taking a provision which is not self-executing and writing our own cause of action, which is, uh, last time I checked, I thought to be a legislative, not a judicial matter. So I know I am well over my time, but I do have a few responses. So first and foremost, this is not a political suit. This is an action where the president has taken the unprecedented step, one taken by every other president, I, every I other federal official. I want to interject and say at that point, I, I want to, not to quibble with my good friend Judge Wilkerson from the partisan perspective. Whatever this court does is going to apply to every president. It doesn't matter what policy parties belong to. What we are doing is essentially not just, it's not just this president we're talking about. We're talking about every future president. And what we do today is going to apply across the board. And this is not the only instance this may come up. Absolutely. And we know that because every other president has sought guidance from the Office of Legal Counsel or the Comptroller General about how to order their affairs. We are here because President Trump has not. And whatever this no, court does, we're here we'll... to determine whether a writ of mandamus lies. And, and we're having all these interesting discussions about what might happen when this case comes back to us. But, counsel, aren't we really here to determine whether the district court has usurped its judicial authority? Absolutely. And I'd ask you, if you would, to, to, to get us back a little bit to that point that I think is the point at issue today. I agree. It is where I started, Judge Keenan, because I do think it is dispositive. Every court to have considered the question has held that mandamus is not an appropriate vehicle to demand a 1292B certification. Judge Friendly, I think, very clearly explained that Congress intended there to be a dual gatekeeper What about system. the 11th Circuit case that your friend cited? 
at the beginning of his argument. Judge Diaz, the 11th Circuit case is, I think, similar to the D.C. Circuit case, where it was an instruction to certify. I think what's interesting is he also relies on the 5th Circuit McClellan case, um, which I think did the same thing as the 11th Circuit. When that case came back up to the 5th Circuit, what the 5th Circuit expressly said was the district court still had the jurisdiction or the discretion to deny the certification decision, even though the 5th Circuit had it sort of put its thumb on the scale. And I think that speaks to the fact that the district court is the first and sometimes the last. So is it, is it your view that this sort of dual gatekeeper role that 1292 seems to contemplate is absolute in every case? It is because it is a limited exception to the final judgment rule. This court is Do we court, need to say that in this case? I think this court would just have to apply 1292B as its text suggests, which is when the district court is of the opinion the certification can be appropriate, and it kicks to this court to determine whether to take it. But where the district court, in a thorough opinion, was not of the opinion that the 1292B criteria were met, that's the end of the matter. If the president wants to come back on an appeal from a final judgment, or if in a Cheney-type situation there's some other order he finds particularly odious, that could be a vehicle of getting back to this court. Why would we just dive into this case and go through rounds and rounds of discovery and, and, and the like? without having the slightest idea of what remedy we want or what, what the source of the right is, and all these under questions, it, it, it's like, um, you know, to, it, it, again, it's like, it's like starting the journey without knowing wh where you're going. How many people buy an airplane ticket, get on the plane, and have no idea where the plane's going to land? I think I know exactly where this plane is going to land. We believe we've ordered a plane to tell the president not to be accepting foreign and domestic profits through his hotel. We you think know, that the end result of that is injunctive that's, relief. That is so, that's such a general formulation. It gives, it gives guidance to no one. I think there are very clear allegations in our complaint. The GSA lease. I think there are also allegations that have come forward since the complaint, such as the main governor, the governor of Kentucky. So we believe that we have cleared the initial motion. Well, to you know, the, the, the whole purpose of litigation is to figure out where the plane is going to land. You never have any absolute certainty in any any case. That's, That's why, why we, we have litigate a litigation cases. Process, yeah. right? Absolutely. We think we are headed in the direction that we would like to be headed in, but we also think we've cleared the initial threshold. You know, I don't want to like overplay this airplane analogy, but we've gotten through TSA, right? <laughs> and I think that we should be allowed to board our plane and see where the litigation takes us. And I think Congress expressly mandated that in 1292B by making it a dual gatekeeper system. To have a litigation process, you have to have the assertion of a right and a plausible claim to a remedy. And the problem is... There is no right here that has been conferred on anyone by this particular provision. And the Supreme Court has rejected that time and again. If you look at free enterprise, if you look at bond, there are structural provisions of the Constitution that those, especially states... More often it has held them non-justiciable. I grant you there are some that have been held justiciable, but the bulk of them have been held non-justiciable, and it is crucial and it, 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 that this particular monuments clause was placed where it is and not and not in the Bill of Rights or in some or or without any rights <coughs> rights conferring language. But just as the appointments clause in free enterprise or bicameralism in Shada, we believe that it's a routine exercise of this court's equity jurisdiction to vindicate structural provisions of the Constitution. Of course, that is not a question this court needs to reach today, because what we are looking at is whether mandamus is appropriate to take jurisdiction under 1292B. We think it is absolutely not. 
And then there's the secondary question of whether or not mandamus to outright dismiss the case is appropriate. We also think that that's not appropriate. And the D.C. Circuit agreed with us because it found no clear and indisputable right to relief of ultimate dismissal when it uh, went and sent Well, the D.C. Circuit said it was not going to wade into the question of mandamus. Um, respectfully, Judge Agee, no, I'm said, quoting what the D.C. Circuit said. It was not going to wade into this question about whether mandamus was appropriate for 1292B. I'm speaking to the secondary question in the mandamus petition, which is mandamus outright to dismiss. And what the court said is, although plaintiff has identified substantial questions concerning standing and the cause of action, he has not shown a clear and indisputable right to dismissal of the complaint on either of those grounds. So absolutely, it declined to wade into this brewing circuit split about whether mandamus of a 1292 was appropriate. But it quite clearly well, said Well, if mandamus, mandamus is, is focused on the usurpation of judicial power, uh, the Supreme Court has recognized that uh, you can direct the court to get out, which is dismissal. And so there are two avenues for mandamus that the president has sought. 1292B, which every court has considered has held 1292B was, it, the, the mandamus was because the court refused to let us uh, review the question. But the question comes up because the court made an, uh, an analysis under 1292B that was a clear abuse of discretion. But the question then comes, it's clear abuse of discretion was uh, exercised or it's, uh, abuse was exercised in a circumstance where the court usurped judicial power. And, that's and uh, the Supreme Court, for instance, in the uh, uh, Schlagenhoff opinion, uh, basically said those are the two alternative things, usurpation of judicial power or clear abuse of discretion. That was quoted again, of course, in Cheney. And considering but, that very question, the D.C. Circuit held that he'd not shown a clear and indisputable right to relief of dismissal of the entirety of the suit. It didn't get into it. It said it's a clear abuse of discretion in certifying and refusing to certify and asked the court to look at it again. And as you know, the district court then certified. And it went right back up, and that's where it is. So they took an extra step. We didn't take that step. So I want to be absolutely clear about the two types of mandamus the president is seeking. The first is for certification under 1292B. That is the dispute that the D.C. Circuit elected not to weigh into, and that is the question that every court of appeals to have considered has found to be inappropriate. There is the second request for mandamus to outright dismiss the complaint. That is something that the D.C. Circuit did consider and found that there was no clear and indisputable right to dismissal on that basis. So I think we win on both theories of mandamus for many of the same reasons as the D.C. Circuit found on the underlying order, but also because every court of appeals to have considered the 1292B question has held that certification is inappropriate. I know I am well over my time. Thank um, you, counsel. Thank you very much. I have four points I'd like to hit. Uh, I'd like to start with the mandamus standard, and uh, Judge Keenan, I want to address some of your questions about that. You're absolutely right that mandamus is an extraordinary type of relief, and it's only available, let me quote, the burden of showing that the right of issuance of the right is clear and indisputable. We don't dispute that. But here's what Cheney further said, and this is totally, very important. He said, only exceptional circumstances amounting to a judicial usurpation of power or a clear abuse of discretion. Or, in the disjunctive, the Supreme Court has made totally clear that a clear abuse of discretion does satisfy one of the prongs of the mandate standard. Point two, now let me show you why that standard is met here. Uh, let me start with the 1292B standard. And Judge Diaz, as I predicted when we, during my opening argument, her position is that no matter how flagrantly the district court abuses its discretion under 1292B, 
There is nothing this court can do about it. You ask that point blank, and she answered, and that's the necessary implication of her position. She has to read 1292B to strip this court of any power to supervise a district court. Well, counsel, I, I guess I'm, I'm not following why that's right. I, as I understand her position, and this is awkward because she's not standing up there anymore, but the position is that we can't use mandamus to order a district court to certify a question under 1292. But there's this alternative ground um, that's at issue in this case. We could use mandamus, for instance, to order a district court, you know, to quash a particular um, discovery uh, subpoena. We can still get at the underlying problem if we think a district court has, has usurped its judicial authority. But, and, and she goes on to say that's not, as the D.C. Circuit held, that one right. doesn't apply here because there's no clear right. and undisputed right. But again, Your Honor, as I, my so, first... So I get, just to be, do, do, you, do, you miss, or do you understand their I position totally differently? I understand what you're saying, but I think the, uh, what I would respond to is she's saying there's no way at all to get at the abuse of discretion in the certification. As I told Judge Keenan and the Red of the Supreme Court, abuses, clear abuses of discretion are available, mandamus is available for it. And she is saying that something about 1292B strips this court of that general power in this particular context. This particular context. But why does it matter if we can? Why? I mean, because I, I, I thought even your opening argument, and it was certainly your <laughs> argument before the panel, is this would be a lot more straightforward if you would just direct mandamus to dismiss this case. Right. Who cares whether we can get them, order a district court to certify a question just, for direct appeal when we can do that? So I'll say two things about that. The one is I certainly agree, and that's going to be my third point. I'll do that, but here's why it matters. It matters because of Judge Niemeyer's question. The standard to get mandamus of the 1292B is whether it was a clear abuse of discretion about whether there's a substantial legal question. This court wouldn't have to bite off the question of whether it was clear and indisputable error to not dismiss the well, case. Well, it also has to be controlling and contribute to the well, sort of speedy resolution. Excuse me, I, and I read Sorry. the district court's very careful, reasoned decision on this, and the district court relied very heavily on the idea that as to standing, the government had only identified one of the three possible bases, so even if you got an interlocutory appeal on that, it actually wouldn't bring the litigation to a quick close, and that on the merits, even under the government's theory, the plaintiffs would still have a cause of action. There was a lot of discussion by the district court, not only about substantial difference of opinion, but about things that were very particularized to this particular case, the litigation strategies of the parties, and, and, and so I, I feel that we're not really discussing the basis for the With district court's respect, decision. With all due respect, Your Honor, that has got to be incorrect. I know the district court said those things, but it has got to be incorrect because one of our theories is the president is, subject, is not subject to suit at all. And if we are right about that, the case is over. There's nothing to talk about anymore. There's no further proceedings. There's, no, there's nothing. The case is over. So if we are right that there is at least a substantial legal question about whether the president is subject to suit, it is a clear abuse of discretion. But if there's a substantial legal question as to standing, which you were arguing about before, the district court might still be right, because well, as so to competitor standing... I have a standing, longer answer for why they're wrong about that. You don't have to give it to me. In our brief. Okay. They just misunderstood our theory. But, okay, so, but so, so we should issue mandamus if the district court misunderstands the theory. They clearly misunderstood our theory. But again, on the president not being subject to suit, that's the end of it. If, we, if there is a substantial legal doubt, a substantial legal question about that, which I think there is, which I'll, about, I'll describe in a second. If that was a clear abuse of discretion, a clear one, she's saying that we can't, you as an appellate court can't do anything about that. And that is just a sergeant. To use her example, it's like if TSA let a guy through with a loaded gun and the supervisor just has to say, well, 
I hope he doesn't bring down the plane. There is nothing about 1292B that puts this court in that position. I th frankly, I think that's your position. No matter what the president does, there are nothing the TSA slash the courts can do. And that's a great segue to my third point and my answer to Judge Harris. Again, let me read from the Supreme Court's decision in Franklin versus Massachusetts. The president is not explicitly ex excluded from the APA's purview, but he is not explicitly included either. Out of respect for the separation of powers and the unique constitutional position of the president, we find that textual silence is not enough to subject the president to the provisions of the APA. Our position, as Judge Wilkinson pointed out. The APA out, is in the Constitution of the United States? It's a statute that authorizes constitutional claims. <coughs> right. And but it's not in the Constitution. That is correct, It's not a clause Honor. in the Constitution. And the Constitution does not, of its own force, allow people to sue. As she pointed out, and correctly, she is invoking not a constitutional right Is your to sue. colleague on the other side? Yes, Your Honor. My, my colleague on the other side, I apologize. A counsel, uh, even? Counsel on the other side pointed out correctly that her claim is not based on the Constitution itself. It is based on an implied cause of action in equity. The court's equitable jurisdiction comes from Congress. It is that if you look at the Supreme Court decision in Grupo Mexicano, it is a grant of equity jurisdiction from Congress, and it's implied. That's why this quote from Franklin is so important. The quote from Franklin says, absent a clear statement from Congress, you can't sue the president. Even if you set aside Franklin, if you look at the Supreme Court's equitable cases, they say in cases like Rupa Mexicano, it has to be a traditional form of relief. If it is an extension of traditional forms of relief, Congress has to do it. And they cannot point to a single instance where the Supreme Court or an appellate court, with one exception in, from D.C. from 40 years ago, has allowed a suit against the president in his official capacity. It is Clearly, a radical extension. Well, tell me about the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit? Yes. The Second Circuit didn't reach this question, Your Honor. Uh-huh. It just didn't. The, the district court only addressed. Because nobody had mandamused anything there, right? Well, no, because we won in the district court. Well, and there was a reversal of your win. No, that's right. But, but So you, you asked why the Second Circuit. We won in the district court on standing and zone of interest. The district court didn't reach our argument that the president's not subject to suit. And so the Second Circuit didn't reach. But the gist of the questions that have come here is that what we're supposed to do at this stage is to look down and see where you're going and if we cannot foresee that you would be getting relief then we should grant mandamus isn't that fair the, i think the we want to see where the airplane's going before we get on I think it's clear from right now that that airplane's going to crash. Well, I understand what you're saying. So that's your position, so that the Second Circuit wouldn't be, wouldn't be contrary to that position. The question wasn't presented. The district court had Well, if, he, if, no, he, the, if the question is, because the airplane fly, it certainly was. Your Honor, the appellate courts don't typically rule on questions that the district court hasn't ruled on yet, and that's why the Second Circuit didn't address it. Well, but, there are, it seems to me there, in the discussion that we've had today, there are a whole bunch of questions that haven't been ruled on yet. I and don't if we're not think supposed that's to right, be Your addressing Honor. Every those. single one of the arguments I've made thus far is something we argued below and that the district court rejected. Can, is there a reason you guys, um, I'm sorry, is there a reason the government did not seek mandamus in the Second Circuit to sort of dismiss the case outright because whether or not they're standing, nobody can sue the president? We won below. By the time you got to the Second we, we Circuit, won in the it was right. Court. We didn't, Are, yeah. right, we didn't but offer now, any alternative right. grounds. 
because it wasn't we won below on jurisdictional grounds, and so you couldn't affirm on alternative grounds on a non-jurisdictional basis. Okay. Good. Well, we'll wait to see what they say to this argument. And uh, I have one last point with your court's indulgence, because I do think it's important. I want to just make two quick points about the merits. So there have been a lot of concern, and uh, I, I understandable, and I understand why people would be concerned about the president being able to act above the law without the law. So I think it's important to emphasize and conclude my argument today with just a brief explanation of why we think that their claim is wrong on the merits of the emoluments clause. I think one of the key points I was going to make is already been elucidated by Judge Qualbaum and Judge Agee's questions. Their theory of any profit can't be right that they abandoned it today by adopting this discretionary exception. I don't know where it came from. They said apparently you have to look to history. So let's look to history. And this will be my final point. In 1810, and we put this out in our reply brief. In 1810, there was a proposed constitutional amendment to extend the Foreign Emoluments Clause to all citizens. That constitutional amendment was passed by overwhelmingly in Congress and nearly three quarters of the states. So what that means is that my colleague and opposing counsel's position today is that almost the entire country almost passed a constitutional amendment that would have said foreign diplomats could not buy food, housing or lodging. They would, I suppose, have to starve to death in the street. That is what they are interpreting the Emoluments Clause to require. It is just simply not tenable. It's a totally ahistorical, a-contextual interpretation of the Emoluments Clause. The clause has never been understood to cover profits from commercial transactions. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you.